Amen. Okay. Um, well, the next question in our list of worldviews questions is why is there something rather than nothing? And um, so we're going to look at the three worldviews. Theism. We're not really going to look at that because we already know that. So we'll, um, that's the idea of creation and God, God created everything. Uh, we'll spend a lot of time on evolution, the naturalist view, the atheist view, and then pantheism. And those are the, the three answers that those worldviews give. Pantheism basically says that there is nothing. And we'll do it in reverse order. Um, pantheism, if you remember, says that all that there is is God. God is not a creator from outside, but the sum total of all of the reality of which we are a part. And so this world is really just imagination. But even though this world is just imagination, they came up with an explanation of how the world got here. <laughs> and this is just a quote. Um, it says, at least 2,000 years before Darwin, the yoga philosophers of India set out their view of the universe in evolutionary terms. They visualized the evolution of our present cosmos as a rope opening out its strands to all the variety of nature and life as we know it. Since they were modest, meaning everything is one, the rope had to be eternal and it kept opening out in the process of creation and then retwisting its strands in the process of dissolution. Thus we are a part of an eternal pulsating universe. Just now the universe seems to be in its expanding and creative stage, but it will eventually start folding up again and so on forever. These guys are at the end of their <coughs> Thank you. Yeah. How come retwisting of the strands, which tends to make a rope stronger, has to do anything with this solution? Please. Oh. <laughs> well. Yeah. It's hard to believe anybody believes that. <laughs> So the question is, where does everything come from? The pantheist says it doesn't. It doesn't really exist. Um, but then they come up with their explanation, so we evaluate it with our criteria, and is it logical that they would need to come up with a theory to explain the origin of the world if it doesn't exist? It's all imagination. We, our experience question is, well, does it match your experience? You know, no. And then practice. Can you live in a world where everything is one? If there's no, if there's only, everything is one, there's no good and evil. And, and so we know that that doesn't work either. Hmm? I'm sorry. I don't you don't have to eat or sleep or do anything that's else. That's right. That's right. Yeah, they, one of the things that um, in the article where I was quoting from, he said that uh, pantheist Hindu uh, professors like to, you know, challenge their students to prove that they're not in a dream. You know, I couldn't help but think of that. What's that Leonardo DiCaprio movie they came out with where they had dreams within dreams, and that was really confusing. I don't know if any of you saw that. <clears throat> so that's the pantheist view, and it doesn't make much sense. <coughs> Uh, the next one is naturalism, and uh, you might have heard this, but it's from goo to the zoo to you. So, um, 
you know, you've, you've often heard the saying that science says. Well, that's not an accurate statement because science doesn't actually say anything. Science is just a methodology. It's the scientists who say things. And a lot of what scientists say is philosophical. Um, it's not empirical. And they, they draw conclusions of the, of the facts and, you know, based on their bias. <clears throat> Um, and so I think that one of the things you know we should recognize is the limitation of science. That science is about what you can observe and measure, and if they're talking about things you can't observe and measure, then they're not talking really about science. They're really being philosophical. <clears throat> so when the scientist makes up, and I use that term on purpose, <laughs> the explanations about the extinction of the dinosaurs and when the dinosaurs lived then that's not something they can observe and measure, so that's really more of a philosophical statement. And I don't know if you've noticed, but, you know, everything's a theory nowadays. What is a... When I was in school and learning science, I learned that there were a couple stages there. There was the hypothesis, which is an educated guess, and then after you measured and proved your hypothesis, it then became a theory. And a theory was, you know, a little more established and reputable. Everything's a theory these days, you know. And so it seems kind of deceptive to me that M theory and, you know, all these different, they come up with all these different things and just label them a theory when, in fact, it's they're just guesses. And so I think it's helpful to kind of remember that. <clears throat> um, the... Uh, Naturalist assumption is that there is no God. Matter is all there is. For example, in the textbook Physics Today, it says, um, the first criterion is that scientific theory must be naturalistic. So they, they basically are saying that um, you can't appeal to supernatural, you can't appeal to God. If you do, then that's not scientific. And they basically you know, stack the deck against us so that we can't ever go there. And they've closed that option off as an answer to any question. Um, but that's a philosophical assumption. That's not a scientific statement. We could say the first rule of science is that God created everything with order, and the scientist's job is to study the world and figure out how God did it, and that will bring us you know, more in awe of his creativity and his power. And actually, that was the first rule for the first 300 years after the Renaissance, until Darwin. But when Darwin came up with his theory of evolution, then the scientists really wanted some way to not you know, have a god, and they adopted it even without proof. And Richard Dawkins said in The Blind Watchmaker, he said, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Um i got glare on here. I can't see. <clears throat> I'm behind. Um, we read this last time, or maybe two times ago. Richard Lewontin said that we take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance the scientific community 
for unsubstantiated just-so stories because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. Moreover, that materialism is an absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Um, What does he mean when he says just-so stories? Uh, Wikipedia says that just-so... Isn't this where Rudyard Kipling had his book of how the camel got his hump? Things like that. Those were his just-so stories, right? Well, Wikipedia says, In science and philosophy, a just-so story, also called an ad hoc fallacy, is an unverifiable and unfalsifiable narrative explanation for a cultural practice, a biological trait, or behavior of humans or other animals. The pejorative nature of the expression is an implicit criticism that reminds us, reminds the hearer of the essentially fictional and unprovable nature of such an explanation. Ad hoc means made up on the spot. Um, And he's... And uh, just so story is a, a fictional story, and so you know, my point was it's not science. I think the next point really should be it's science fiction a lot of times. Okay, um, scientists come up with bizarre explanations for how the universe came about. Um, I have this program on my iPad called Zeit. Z i t e. I think they're referring to the German word for Zeit, which is time, and so they misspelled it, but maybe that was taken. But what's, what it does is it aggregates news and feeds me these little blurbs, and I can go, oh, well, that looks interesting, I'll go read the article. In the last three weeks, they have sent me things like this that you know tie into you know what we're talking about, so it's been really interesting. This uh, said, The guy says, quantum mechanical fluctuations can produce the cosmos, said panelist Seth Shostak, a senior astronomer at the nonprofit Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, SETI Institute. If you would just, in this room, just twist time and space the right way, you might create an entirely new universe. It's not clear you could get into that universe, but you would create it. So it could be that this universe is merely the science fair project of a kid in another universe, Shostak added. I don't know how that affects your theological leanings, but it's something to consider. Is it really something to consider? I mean, this is a scientist, right? Another uh, new scientific fad is to postulate multiverses, multiple universes. And so, since it's been shown without you know, any doubt that time plus chance in our universe couldn't have produced where we're at. They have multiplied that possibility by a, a theorizing a, an infinite number of multiple universes. Okay. And so I'm pretty sure they got that from Stargate. <laughs> but... Oh, that's next. Um, If you had a thousand tornadoes blow through a thousand forests, could you get a house? What if you had a million tornadoes blow through a million forests? No? What about if you had a billion tornadoes blow through a billion forests? You know, they, they haven't solved any problem. They just, they're just throwing this out as if it's an answer. And we're going to see several people throw this out later on in, the, in our discussion. 
So, what are some of the reasons we shouldn't believe in evolution? Well, I think since it's we're talking science, we need to you know focus on the logic part. And so, you know, some of the reasons are that there's no supporting evidence. Well, back in 2005, when I actually still got the uh, Dallas Morning News, I was looking through whatever section it was, and I ran across this quote, and it was there was a bunch of intelligent design stuff in, in that section. This guy says, but the acceptance of evolution diminishes religious belief in aggregate for a simple reason. It provides a better answer to the question of how we got here than religion does. Not a different answer, a better answer. More plausible, more logical, and supported by an enormous body of evidence. Post-Darwinian evolutionary theory, which can explain the emergence of the first bacteria, doesn't even leave much room for a deist god whose minimal role might have been to flick the first switch. How do you deal with stuff like that? Is that Jake Hardy? Jacob Weinberg. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't know who Jay Carney is. He's the president's press secretary. Oh. I don't watch the press. Well, you've got to remember, we're in a postmodern society, right? You can say anything you want. It doesn't actually have to be true. And I was listening to Michael Medved's show years ago, and they had a, this was actually before the first Obama election, and they had a guy named Frank Luntz on, and it was, he wrote a book. He thought, what you say, it's how you say it, or what people hear. And so here we have a major newspaper. It's in black and white, and he just says it. And, you know, some people will read that, and they'll believe it. But he, he's just making that stuff up. So... When I say there's no supporting evidence, the first thing we can look at is the fossil record. Um, in 1980, they had a macroevolution conference, and the paleontologist basically said to the evolutionist biologist, there are no bones to support this. Zero support in the fossil record. And Jay, uh, Stephen Jay Gould said that's the trade secret of, the, the pale of paleontology. And so he said, what we've got to do is we've got to stop calling them missing links. Let's call them transitional forms. Because then people won't know that they're missing. Okay? And so they, you never hear the phrase missing links anymore. They've all adopted the, the, the phrase transitional forms. And so they talk about transitional forms, but they don't have any. Um, Stephen Meyer um, wrote a book recently, uh, Darwin's doubt, and he went into great detail about the, the Cambrian period and the layers of sediment that they've found, all these different fossils from very different creatures that all appeared at the same time. And they go to the, low, the layer below, and there's nothing except some sponge eggs. About the most fragile thing you could think of, those were preserved. So if there's you know, nothing else below that, you know, there's there's no you know, in transitional forms or whatever below. <clears throat> and he said that because of the evidence, science, sci actual scientists are fleeing evolution in droves, and they're trying to come up with. They have he listed a half a dozen different theories. None of them are not too many of them are turning to God, but they're saying this evolution doesn't work. 
And he said, actually, the only people that still teach and preach, believe in evolution are the um, professors, okay? Um, and then the news media, and then people like Dawkins who are, you know, promoting this thing, and they're kind of the advocates. So, um, finches... That was something that Darwin discovered on that island of Galapagos. I was watching a uh, documentary evolution versus creation thing by Ray Comfort, and he was going around talking to biologists and saying, you know, have you got any examples that you can show me? These people were pulling out finches. You know, that's that was something that was, you know, Darwin came up with 150 years ago, and that's what they're still using as proof. Um, there's that story about the moths and all the pollution in London when they burned all the coal and only the dark moths survived because the white ones, I guess, got eaten by the birds because they could be seen on the dark tree trunks. But when they cleaned up the pollution, the white moths came back. But when you were all done, what did you have? You had moths or you had finches, but you didn't have new species. Or whatever. Um, and so that's, those are examples of microevolution and what the problem is, is people look at microevolution examples and then they just kind of extrapolate macroevolution. And, you know, because of that, Ken Ham has made a big thing about don't use the phrase microevolution. He says it's really a loss of genetic information. And he says if you lose enough genetic information, you get down to a poodle. Um, Haeckel's embryo chart in 1876 this guy named Haeckel fabricated this thing and put it out to the scientific community to show that a human embryo starts off looking kind of like a salamander or something and then a duck and then a pig and you know finally at the last stage of his you know, development it becomes more human they figured out that this was a fake after about a year or two, and they actually kicked him out of the science club, and he was discredited. But I saw these pictures of moths and finches and Haeckel embryo charts in my science textbooks in high school and in college. So they don't have anything new, and they just, even though they know this is a fake and have known it since 1878, you know, I'm seeing it in textbooks in 1978, and I'm, I'm assuming they're still using them. <clears throat> but if, so, um, if they don't have any proof and they still believe this, then you have to recognize that their belief in evolution is really just blind faith. And I would say it takes more faith to believe that than to believe uh, in the supernatural. The next thing is problem with evolution is the idea of cause and effect. Um, you know, the scientists have figured out that the galaxy is expanding. So if it's expanding, like when you throw a rock in the pond and the ripples go out, you know, something had to have started that process. And, you know, you, you'll ask them, well, where did Z come from? It came from Y. Where did Y come from? It came from X. And, you know, they just keep going back. But they kind of refuse to get to the beginning. Um, <clears throat> so they'll use things like time plus chance. Cost it. 
how does chance cause anything? Chance is a mathematical probability. It's not a force that causes things. And, and if there was nothing, there actually was no time. Right? So, you know, how do you deal with that? Well, Stephen Hawking recognized that problem, so he wrote a book called The Grand Design, and he said, we have finally found something that didn't have a cause. It's the universe. <laughs> and his argument is because there was no time before the Big Bang, there could not have been a cause because there was no before. Well, that's very convenient. But he hadn't proven anything. He just made a claim, and a claim is not proof. And they can't measure it. They can't observe it. And the problem with his view is that it goes against the common human experience where everything has a cause. And it goes against science, because what is science? It's basically studying cause and effect. So it's not a scientific claim at all. <clears throat> the next problem with evolution is intelligent design, or I should have said irreducible complexity. Um, you probably heard the illustration of the mouse trap, piece of wood, that thing that flips over the spring and the catch. You know, if you don't have all four of those things, you don't catch mice. You can't just put a piece of wood out and count mice a little bit, and then you add the trap part. You know, well, that's a very simple illustration, but you know, what about eyeballs? You know, how do things like that just happen? Darwin said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. And he was bothered by eyeballs. He really was. Say that again? He never studied anatomy. Well, he was actually concerned about eyeballs. He was kind of wondering how those could have actually formed by slight, successive slight modifications. Uh, Joe Martin taught here a few years ago, and he talked about the bombardier beetle. And it has two sacs with two different fluids, and when it's in, in the fight mode, it sprays those two fluids out, and when they touch, they turn into steam and hurt the, the predator. Well, how would that evolve? Is he going <coughs> to evolve a couple sacks with no fluid and keep those sacks around for you know, a few million years until he develops the fluid? Or is he going to develop the fluids first and then explode and never... You know, I mean, there's, that's a simple thing. Um, the, um, you get into the microbiology and you find the single cells have these flagellum that motorboat them around, and I say motorboat because they're more complicated than the motor on the bass boat with all the moving parts. And so, that you know, Darwin couldn't see. There was a book called Darwin's Black Box. Well, the cell was a black box for him. He couldn't see in it. Now that we can, we just know that, that you know, it's not possible. And then they've also been doing a lot of research into DNA and genetics, and they're finding that... Um, Various, various organisms are using similar DNA code. So, for instance, um, well, if I'm a programmer, and I, I want my program to be able to open a file, save a file, rename a file, 
I don't have to write all that. I just go to the Windows File Controller and I call that, and that all that functionality is written for me by Microsoft or Apple. Okay, and so that's what we're finding when we look in like there's whales with radar that has the same code as bats with radar, and bats and whales are not related. There's no common ancestor if you were to try to you know put together an evolutionary tree. <coughs> and what what actually happens, I think, is they, they, scientists will show you a dolphin fin with five kind of bony-like you know, cartilage thingies in there, and then a hand, and you'll see. They're kind of, they're kind of over, they're oversimplifying. So, another problem, the uniqueness of man. Uh, we're going to do a whole class on this, so I'll just summarize. But man's conscious, conscience, his intelligence, and his love separating from the animals. You know, every culture has a belief in God, and naturalism cannot explain those things. The next problem with evolution is the idea of entropy, or the second law of thermodynamics. Um, this means that things deteriorate. Our houses, our bodies, everything. The universe, the energy in the universe is running down. Mutations, they've never found a mutation that was beneficial. They tout the fact that they had a fly that mutated and had four wings instead of two. They just forget to mention that it couldn't fly. <laughs> so, um, Arthur, Arthur Stanley Eddington wrote that the law that entropy always increases holds, I think, the supreme position among the laws of nature. If someone points out to you that the, your pet theory of the universe is in disagreement with Maxwell's equations, well, then so much for the so much the worse for Maxwell's equations. If it is found to be contradicted by observation, well, these experimentalists do bungle things sometimes. But if your theory is found to be against the second law of thermodynamics, I can give you no hope. There is nothing for it but to collapse in deepest humiliation. So, it's a pretty big principle that totally is contrary to evolution, which says that things improve. <clears throat> the anthropic principle. This is sometimes called the fine-tuning argument, and it states that everything is just right for us to exist in the universe. It's also called the Goldilocks principle, too. And some of the principles that, um, I think there are about a hundred of these, if you look at Hugh Ross's website, but just to give you some examples, the unique properties of water. It's the only thing that expands when it freezes, so it floats. Otherwise, all the fish in Wisconsin would be dead, right? And so, it's things like that that, you know, God knew what he was doing, he planned, you know, for water to function that way. The ratio of the elements in the Earth's atmosphere, nitrogen and hydrogen and oxygen, are just right for, for life. The Earth's magnetic field, if it was greater or lesser, then I guess we'd break apart. Earth's place in the solar system, if we were a little closer to the sun, we'd be burning up, and if we were a little further away, then, then we'd freeze. The solar system's place in the galaxy, the color of the sun, the gravitational force constant, all of these things, if they were off by just 
the slightest, you know, and they have these numbers that go out, you know, with something point, you know, six digits. If they were off just a little, then life couldn't exist. So, um, we're going to look at an article in a few minutes by a, an atheist where he talks about this, and we're going to kind of go through um, their view on this, but. I think the anthropic principle is you know, pretty powerful. If the universe exploded 14 billion years ago and randomly you know, went everywhere, then for everything to be just right um, for, uh, for human life or for carbon-based life is impossible. And that brings up a topic... Um, There's a lot of discussion about old Earth versus young Earth, and is the Earth, you know, universe 14 billion years old, and well, science seems to be proving this Big Bang thing, and what does that do to our theology? Um, I think the Big Bang has problems. I was reading something the other day that if you don't agree with the Big Bang, you actually can't get any financing for your research project. So, bang for the buck? No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no bang for the buck. <laughs> Good. Um, well, so you know, I, I think that when Darwin came out with his evolution thing, a lot of the, theologians kind of said, "Hmm, how can we adjust Genesis to fit this?" And they came up with the gap theory in a previous race, and you know, and then now we know evolution is totally false, and they, you know, kind of like, "Oops, I shouldn't have changed my theology." And I think sometimes that that could possibly be going on with the Big Bang because there are problems with it. But even if it's true, I do think there's actually room for it between Genesis 1, 1, and 2 where God could have spoken everything into existence and it started expanding. And, you know, time doesn't matter to God, so he could have sat around for 14 billion years and then the earth was without form and void and he tilted it just right and put it just right distance from the sun and did all of that stuff in you know the next few verses to make it just right for human life. So I'm not sure that there would be an actual conflict with Genesis if he did it that way. But some things that okay, I am always messing up my oh <clears throat> oh multiple timing problems is next. I'm always messing up my slides. It seems like. Related to the multiple timing problems is a series of things that seem to indicate the Earth is not so old. The Earth's magnetic field is changing, and if you were to follow that back, 10,000 years from now, we couldn't exist. We would break apart. The human genetic diversity from the Human Genome Project, they figured out that it really started diversifying about 5,000 years ago. And if man is 2.4 million years old then why did all of a sudden the genetic diversity just start changing <clears throat> about the time Genesis talks about? If you use the amount of salt in the seas and the way it's changing, it can't be more than you know, 10,000 years old. Bent rock layers. You know, those rock layers, according to geologists, were laid down you know, million, a couple million years for this layer and another couple million years for this layer. But we've got places where they're like bending and going vertical and then they're not broken, 
And they got trees growing through three of the layers. And so you kind of go, maybe those rock layers weren't laid down over millions of years. Maybe it was a flood or something. <clears throat> they talk about blue stars can't be more than 100,000 years old. But we have blue stars. So they make up things about nebulas and gas compressing and exploding. But that's not what gas normally does. It normally expands and dissipates, right? They talk about rocks that they've um, discovered and with, with radioisotope dating that these are 1.5 you know, billion years old or something. Except they got helium trapped in these polonium things that they know for a fact that helium would escape in 6,000 years. But it's got helium in it. And they find DNA in supposedly, you know, two, you know, several million year old bacteria, but DNA doesn't last that long. And uh, they cut up dinosaur bones they found in Montana, and there's this stuff in there, and it turns out to be red blood cells. Well, they know that red blood cells can't last more than 5,000 years. And they know that dinosaurs are 65 million years old. So they go, gee, red blood cells can last 65 million years. <laughs> We're wrong about that. Okay. So are you saying that the evidence points more toward, more toward younger than, than older? Well, I think that the things like this point to God creating Planet, the, you know, Earth, forming the Earth, changing things in the Earth six to ten thousand years ago, you know, regardless of when he created the universe. So, you know, that, I, I just think that, like I said before, it could possibly not be a real conflict if he created it and waited around for billions of years and then said, okay, let's get to it. The Earth has expanded. And that's also assuming a lot of things like um, things always happen at the same rate. You know, so could the universe have expanded a lot quicker? I think the biggest hurdle for a lot of people is that starlight says that those stars, you know, it, it would have taken this long, that long to get here. And so um, people think that God's being deceptive if he just created the starlight in transit, already there. We're actually studying things that never existed. You know, those kind of... And, you know, I do think that creating things with apparent age, I like that option myself. I think that, you know, if you cut down a tree in the Garden of Eden, it would have a lot of rings in it. You know. Jesus made wine. <clears throat> yes, that's true. Jesus made the wine and, and bypassed the aging process. <clears throat> Whoops, what did I do? Yes, that's next. Another one of those Zeit articles that just showed up on my iPad a couple nights ago. That's why I'm so disorganized. I keep getting new material. <laughs> In 1500s, when those uh, Europeans went to Peru and decided to conquer Peru, they found some stones, like bowling ball-sized stones, that had been etched with graphics of animals. What? Looks like a brontosaurus, I think. And another one, brontosaurus, the Tyrannosaurus rex, the Stegosaurus, and a uh, Triceratops. How would 
Inca Indians, or Ica, I-C-A, I thought it was always I-N-C-A, um, how would they know to draw those things in 1000 A.D. or 1200 A.D. unless they'd seen them? Because we didn't dig up dinosaur bones until the last 200 years. <clears throat> in Utah, they found a brontosaurus drawn on a cave wall by the Anasazi Indians who lived in North America between 150 B.C. to 1200 A.D. And there's a man kind of over here. <clears throat> in the Amazon rainforest, they found a pictograph on a cave wall with a brontosaurus and several guys with spears hunting it. And they've discovered... Um, I, should, I'll, I need to get everybody's email address and send you links to some of these things, but... There's this one place... Um, yeah, they have found art, um, things you wear around your neck, necklaces, jewelry. <laughs> jewelry. There we go. <clears throat> um, that have been, you know, formed into you know shapes of dinosaurs all over the world from you know ancient civilizations, Africa. I mean, these. Natives would not have been able to to create that kind of artwork or jewelry, you know, unless they'd seen those kind of things. <clears throat> so, anyway, I think that you know, there's a lot of evidence out there that dinosaurs didn't live 65 million years ago, and a young Earth seems to fit that evidence a lot better. <clears throat> so, I, I kind of find it interesting that. Science is so against the supernatural, and our culture buys into that part of science, but then they spend all their time on TV shows like Charmed and Dresden Files and Heroes, and, you know, everybody's, you know, so focused on the supernatural when it comes to that, but kind of more demon, I guess, than bewitched. bewitched. So... I think the logical evidence is against evolution. The uh, third view is creation. We know this, but you know some key verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Revelation 4.11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power since you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. Um, Psalm 33, let the whole world earth fear the Lord, let all who live in the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came into existence. He issued the decree and it stood firm. I think, Cam, one of the things that I really want to do, I, I, I did my work, master's work on the Exodus, but the two major things of the Old Testament were the Exodus and creation. And when you look at the, the, the prominence of creation, even like the, the prayer of the apostles when they're in Acts and they start their prayer, you who created the heavens and the earth, that's a huge faith premise. Mm -hmm. And when you wipe that out, in a sense, you wipe out everything that's founded on that and in the Bible. That's what yeah, I, 
I think that the theological argument for the fact that Adam was first and death came through Adam and um, if you don't have that you don't need Jesus I went to the ETS convention in November and the topic was inerrancy and I went to the first session and the guy's four, four panel session and the first guy stood up professor at a Catholic university in Canada a scientist and he had written a book he gave his presentation. His A N E, in my mind, through seminary meant ancient Near East. But he, I found out from him, it really mean, meant Adam never existed. <laughs> and so he gave his presentation. There was just a ton of you know stuff being discussed. But you know, it's important that Adam existed, and there's no reason not to believe it. I mean, there's lots of like say lots of evidence for. The 6,000 year date. So, um, not the conclusion of tonight, but the conclusion of the section is why does evolution continue to be promoted when it has been disproven? I think once people have made a philosophical commitment that there is no God, they can be persuaded by relatively minor evidence to believe. Okay. I'm going to go down. And we're going to go back to that anthropic principle. <coughs> I think a lot of times <coughs> we give our reasons in our Sunday school class or a class like this, and then, you know, it's good enough for us, but we really don't know what's the other side doing with that argument. Do they believe it? Is it convincing to them? And so I went out to see what people thought about the anthropic principle. And I ran across an article on the Reason Wiki. And that's a significant name because this is a faith versus reason debate, right? And the atheists are the reasonable crowd. And they have reason rallies in Washington, D.C. And have Richard Dawkins as the main speaker. And so on the Reason Wiki slash anthropic principle article... I thought, let's read this and let's pick it apart. So its first summary statement is that the anthropic principle, remember that's the one where all these things are just right for life on earth. The anthropic principle is a straw man, weakened by the fact that it is basically a tautology. It can be eliminated altogether by multiple universes, quantum mechanics, and M-theory. The anthropic principle cannot be relied upon to prove that God exists. What's a straw man? That's a that's that's a logic term, right? So this is a logical argument. A tautology, that's a big word. That just means circular reasoning. We'll deal with that more in a minute. But you know, you you come out strong with some logic terms and and some scientific stuff like multiple universes. And anybody that uses quantum mechanics, nobody knows what that means. I think that's measuring protons and electrons. And, but, you know, if you throw that out, since nobody knows what it means, that's pretty impressive. And M theory. I know what M means. They have it for manure. Manure theory? It's also called string theory, I think, too. Um, 
A straw man is when you misrepresent another person's argument so that you can tear it down. We're not misrepresenting the argument. They agree. The anthropic principle was an atheist's principle. And we go, oh, that's good. It, but it really it points to God. Okay? So we're not re- misrepresenting them. We just come to a different conclusion. Um, it can be eliminated by multiple universes. I mean, we've already talked about that. How does, how does that eliminate it? So. You can't explain one. So you multiply that. <laughs> yeah. Um, Wikipedia says that M-theory and string theory has been criticized for lacking predictive power or being untestable. Further work continues to find mathematical constructs that join various surrounding theories. However, the tangible success of M-theory can be questioned given its current incompleteness and limited predictive power. String theory. Um, I don't know. Another lady from Probe says, however, we should note that scientists don't escape the fine-tuning issue. String theory math works in ten dimensions and ten dimensions only. So string theory is itself finely tuned. Fine-tuning doesn't arrive from it. In fact, any equation or theory of everything would still be fine-tuned. So he's just throwing out scientific jargon that doesn't really support anything. Well, he explains what he means. A major criticism of the anthropic principle is that it is a tautology, or circular reasoning. In relation to the universe, the tautology is that because we are here, we exist to ask the question. If we did not exist, the question could not be asked. Or stated differently, if the features of the universe were incompatible with our existence, we would not be here to notice it. So if Bill asked me on the first night, Hampton... What is this class about? Why are we here? And I'd go, Bill, if you weren't here, you couldn't ask the question. Anybody else have a question? <laughs> that's a logical fallacy itself. That's a logical fallacy itself. Something that doesn't exist, that's what they're arguing for. Yeah, that's crazy. What do, what they're saying is that there's Right, but the question is, they are true. And so what they're saying about multiple universes is that there's a whole bunch of universes, but there's only one like this one. So this is the one that we're in. Right. All the other ones we wouldn't, we couldn't exist in. Yeah, you're right. They're just, and, and he'll say that a little bit in a minute. That one's unverifiable. This one is verifiable. Oh yeah. We know we exist. Right. At least from a Christian. No, it, it it is unverifiable. So it's it's. it's He says it's begging the question. The phrase fine-tuning presupposes that the physical constants can be fine-tuned. It thus introduces a fine-tuner God as one of the premises of the argument. In another sense, it has not been proven that there actually is a way to change the physical constants. And as long as that is not done, the argument is insubstantial. Thus, the first argument against the anthropic principle is that it uses the unproven assumption that this this fine-tuning is possible. So... Well, an omnipotent sovereign God can tilt the earth and set all that stuff up. You know, the fact that they don't know how you could fine tune it is not an argument that it wasn't fine tuned. He says that the anthropic principle is carbocentric. 
The entropic principle assumes that only a very small number of possible universes would bring forth life. This statement is certainly true for the particular kind of carbon-based life that we know. Other forms of simpler life may exist, possibly helium-based life. Thus, the anthropic principle has not shown that our universe is special in any way. If most universes would bring forth life, the fact that ours has done so needs no explanation. <clears throat> so, I remember an episode of Stargate where they went to a, the world and they had these blue crystals, and that was some form of energy life. Okay, but he's appealing to multiple universes again. The question is not about helium life on another universe. The question is. What about our universe? Other forms of simple life may exist. How is oh. that proof? Yeah, no. Their, their stuff is full of maze. <laughs> Biocentrism. Um, the anthropic principle claims that our universe is special since it brought forth life, excluding other universes since they are not special to bring forth any life. Even if life failed to come into existence, other things at least as interesting might happen. Once again, the anthropic principle has not proven its claim that our universe is special. So there might be something else as interesting as life on another universe. That's exceptionalism. <laughs> That's right. So, again, appealing, appealing to That's other universes. <clears throat> so, the Copernican principle. Um, the Copernican principle is the opposite of the anthropic principle and states that humans do not occupy a privileged place in the universe. Successive astronomical discoveries seem to support this principle. In the Middle Ages, it was assumed that God created man in his image, and as such, man and the earth were the center of the universe. Copernicus and Galileo abolished the illusion that the earth was the center of the solar system and put the sun in its rightful heliocentric place. Then the multiverse concept suggested that our universe may be just one of the many constantly sprouting new universes. <clears throat> I just My Zeit program sent me to an article a couple weeks ago that they now think that black holes are stargates to other universes. I wonder where they got the idea of stargate. <clears throat> so, further diminishing the anthropic principle conclusion that the universe is here just for us. The anthropic principle emphasizes the rarity of life and consciousness, while the Copernican principle forces us to realize that it was not all done just so we could exist. <clears throat> it's true that we're not the center of the universe. We're just, you know, a little speck in this, you know. But theologically, maybe, you know, we are the center of the universe because God, you know, came in, made man in his own image, and we are the focus of what's going on. <clears throat> Um, he goes on to say that there's just, related to this, there's so much wasted space. Okay? Well, what does Psalm 19 say? The heavens declare the glory of God. I'm a lot more in awe of God when I sit out there on Bill's 100 acres waiting for the hogs to come out and I can actually see the Milky Way strip. You know, If God, if the universe was just uh, like a living in Tokyo with your ten by twenty apartment stacked on top of each other, you know that not, would not we would not be in, as in awe of God and all that He's done. <clears throat> he he goes on with great to a great length 
um, to talk about all the dangerous stuff, you know, that goes on. You know, we've got lions and tigers and bears. Oh my! We've got earthquakes. We go too high, we can't breathe. We go too low, you know, in the ocean we die. And so he says, this is not the best. You know, it's not the perfect place for life. Well, that's that's a red herring. You know, that's a, he's taking us off. You know, to some irrelevant point. The question is, you know, why is everything um, just right for life? <clears throat> and he's not the only one. I ran across another article. Um, said Lightman explains the emerging consensus among theoretical physicists that our own universe is only one among countless alternate universes. So there is an emerging consensus among scientists that. This multiverse is true. Universes where the properties of matter and energy may differ significantly from our own. Physicists call this the multiverse. <clears throat> the multiverse also offers a refutation of the concept of intelligent design. Like intelligent design, the multiverse is an idea that accounts for the fact that the universe we inhabit is finely tuned in various ways that permit the existence of life. If certain factors, such as the amount of dark energy in the universe, and I've got another article on my site that said that dark energy might not exist. <clears throat> so there's a lot of debate about dark matter and dark energy. If, the, if we're a little bit greater or lesser, poof. But if there are an infinite or nearly infinite number of universes, some of which are nothing but a cold fog of evenly dispersed particles, and others a single, tiny, infinitely dense point, and ours is merely one of a few universes configured so as to allow life. There's nothing particularly remarkable about our existence in it, because if it were otherwise, we wouldn't be around to remark on it, which is our tautology thing again. Thus, ours is an accidental universe rather than the inexorable and inevitable result of set laws that can be discovered and understood by humanity. So, I think I just figured that one out. Which one? One argument is, given enough time, anything can happen. This is saying, given enough planets. It's, it is. It's an extension of the given enough time. They always gripe about Christians using a god of the gaps. What are they using? A multiverse of the gaps. We just, we're seeing it over and over again, everywhere. So, <clears throat> so Conclusion. Don't be afraid of or persuaded by highfalutin arguments full of logic terms and scientific jargon. Often it's just an attempt to intimidate you. Analyze the argument and see if it is really logical, well-reasoned, accurate. In the case of our rational wiki, Anthropic Principle article, I don't think it was any of the above. <clears throat> 